Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 15th of November 2021 and this is episode 231. On this week's programme, Dr Samuel Foster, a visiting fellow at the School of History at the University of East Anglia, talks about his new book on Yugoslavia in the British imagination. This book explores how the South Slavic Balkan, or the area that became Yugoslavia after 1918, was perceived in the British press by British policymakers, travel writers and opinion leaders before, during and after the Great War. The book is published by Bloomsbury Academic and Samuel spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Norwich. Sam, Samuel, welcome back to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the area of Yugoslavia, Britain and the Great War? Well, thank you for having me back, first of all. I became interested in this area really kind of over a long period. Um, I suppose I've always been interested in the Great War really since I was at school. Um, Again, always had a very, very deep interest in history, particularly modern history. Um, I've always found the First World War to be possibly one of the most fascinating developments in history, mainly because of what came after it and also to many respects respects what came before it. And um, my interest in this particular topic, specifically Yugoslavia, stemmed mostly from my third year as an undergrad, where I was um, enrolled on a year-long special course looking at nationalism and communism in Yugoslavia. Um, Pretty much covered its entire history from founding at the end of the First World War, not the end of the First World War, even just after the first step established that Yugoslavia was founded in December 1918, um, right up until its disintegration um, during the 1990s and early 20th century, um, 21st century. The topic itself, I was, um, during my master's, I actually um, did a project looking at interwar Yugoslavia from a British diplomatic perspective, uh, mainly because I wanted to do some more serious primary source analysis. Um, so much of that was focused on the National Archives at Kew. Uh, but whilst I was doing that, I stumbled across an interesting economic treaties um, titled Kako Jivin Narod, which translates to How the People Live. It was written by a Croatian slash Yugoslav economist stroke social anthropologist, I guess. Um, and it's, yeah, the title of it's called How the People Live, um, the full title, How the People Live, Life in the Passive Regions. And in this treatise, the um, author, a chap called Rudolf Bicinich, travels through um, what's today southern Croatia and western Bosnia-Herzegovina. These areas he calls the passive, passive regions. They are very remote, uh, very isolated, even today even today in many respects. Um, again, these they often appear in a lot of uh, Croatian and Bosnian cinema, kind of as... Uh, which often sort of uh, often sort of discussing social issues present in those countries, and um, he sort of focused and he focuses on these mostly what are mostly peasant communities that inhabited these areas um, really for centuries. And he talks of and uh, unlike many other um, intellectuals at the time, rather than idolise these peasants and sort of present them as salt of the earth, godly um, bearers of the national culture and national spirit. He presents them as being mired in poverty, which he 
Interestingly, doesn't even really blame on the government, like many Croatian intellectuals were prone to do in, into all Yugoslavia or the state. He blames it more on ingrained traditions that have been psycholog that were sort of psychologically embedded within their mentalities, which and he even point and he even points out in this research, most of these peasants don't even like or particularly care that much about these traditions. They're just doing it out of habit. Um, so that was an interesting thing. And I say that was the one of that's that I actually do refer, reference that text a couple of times in the final chapter of the book, um, which I was very pleased to do so, because again, I see it as foundational to the whole project. And then when I started my PhD itself, um, it was suggested by my supervisor that I think more about the First World War. Um, again, because the interwar period of Yugoslavia has been reasonably well studied compared to the earliest periods. So I went back to, um, I started I started in the Imperial War Museum archives looking through various documents. Um, I decided I would continue with a British perspective, but then also bring in more regional perspectives as a sort of form of comparison. And um, I started by looking at the example of a British doctor, a lady called Dr. Catherine Stewart MacPhail. She again shows up as one of my case studies in the book. Um, and I was interested, a lot of the secondary literature I'd read around this tends to emphasize the fact that, um, so yeah, Captain MacPhail herself was a trained doctor from Glasgow. She had journeyed to Yugoslavia, to what became Serbia, sorry, in the first, during the First World War as a medical volunteer uh, with an organization called the Scottish Women's Hospitals for Foreign Service. Some of your listeners may have heard of it. It was quite, it became fairly well known. Um, and she was one of the early, she was one of the early volunteers. She was one of, in one of the first missions sent to Serbia during the First World War. And um, a lot of the literature tends to paint these types, the, particularly these female actors as kind of, um, as um, sort of uh, channeling energies that had previously been focused on political activities, um, mainly women's suffrage, towards international aid as a kind of wartime displacement activity. But when you actually read through off their documents, they don't. Most of them are very averse to politics. Catherine MacPhail herself talks about how much she despised people, anyone who was overtly political. Um, their main focus tends to be on. I discovered ten, as I read as I read more examples from this mission she served on, tended to be mostly their main concerns were on employment, specifically the, their prospects for post-war employment in the medical field. Again, a field that was largely closed. Most most much of which was closed to uh, women, and um, the sense that they were, uh, yeah, on a deeper sense, this idea that they were a part of something bigger than themselves. Um, again, if uh, any, for any of the, any of your listeners who might be familiar with the early stages of Britain's war effort, it really wasn't. It's re it wasn't a national effort at all. Um, vast swathes of the vast wave, vast swathes of the service industries were, were still closed off to much of the population. Um, the government seemed to be more concerned half the time with maintaining the state, the Edwardian era status quo. And and I re and that sort of brought the second strand of this project to the fore, and that being um, social factors within Britain itself. Um, and so as kind of this project, and that was really what ultimately became this book, um, this idea of sort of um, analysing in parallel social developments, both in what became Yugoslavia and in early 20th century Britain. So I wonder whether we may start by establishing three bits of context. And I'll briefly go through those three and then if we could take them one at a time. Firstly, when we refer to Yugoslavia or the South Slavic Balkan, what geographical area are we referring to? Secondly, could you give us a bit of context uh, when you refer to exploring Yugoslavia and the British imagination? And the final thing I'd like to cover is the complex ethnic, political 
and religious and demographic nature of what is called the South Slavic Balkan. So could we start, go back to the beginning, could you tell us what area we are referring to when we talk about Yugoslavia? Certainly. The area that um, was previously formed the country of Yugoslavia is today the modern-day republics of Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia, Slovenia, North Macedonia, Montenegro, and, although still very much contested internationally, Kosovo. Those are the countries that um, comprise today's Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia itself was a, um, well, it actually existed, either, if this is where, again, it may not, it might not surprise many of your listeners to learn, this is, things become immediately complicated straight out the door. So, <laughs> Yugoslavia itself existed in three incarnations, if you like. The first one was, which is what I focus on in the book, was the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, or to give it its original name, the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. Um, would it surprise you that they later changed the name? Um, <laughs> this existed, um, this, yeah, this was part of a, well, existed as part of a political compromise between if uh, any of your listeners are familiar with the, the last episode, my previous episode, the kingdoms of Serbia and Montenegro. And again, what, what would become um, Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina and Slovenia, modern day, that had previously been part of Austro-Hungary. So this is essentially a union of um, these South Slavic territories. Again, the South Slavs are the majority of the population that um, inhabit these areas. If you, for further context, you might want to my episode, the episode on Serbia, where I explain this. Um, and it, come, it comes into existence on the 1st of December, 1918. It, um, yeah, it um, exists throughout most of the interwar period, right into the early years of the Second World War. In 1941, it, um, it, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia is invaded by the Axis powers, um, along with various, who along with various collaborative, collaborate, um, political collaborators in the region, specifically um, in Croatia, where a fascist group called the Ostasha is to power by the Italians and Germans, um, partitions Yugoslavia. Um, so, for example, um, this thing called the Independent State of Croatia, which is an amalgamation of today's Croatia, Bosnia, and S so various areas of Serbia, comes into existence. Um, there is a, that's kind of that's, that's kind of the site of, of extensive genocide during the Second World War. Um, Serbia, for example, is meanwhile is reduced to this sort of rump state over in the east that's basically pretty much controlled by the SS. Um, it has a collaborationist government, but essentially the yeah. Um, officers from the S from the Waffen SS are drafted in to pretty much administer it. Um, again, uh, along with trying to exterminate Serbia's Jewish population. Um, then, as a consequence, in especially, particularly um, the area Croatia and Bosnia, the there emerges this mass this um, extensive resistance group, which is led by Yugoslavia's Communist Party that had been banned during the second during the interwar period. Um, and um, yeah, the Yugoslavia then becomes somewhat unique amongst the amongst um, the Second World War's other countries, and that the territories of Yugoslavia are actually liberated by their Communist Party rather than the Soviet Union just marching in and installing a communist government, as occurs in, say, Romania or Hungary or Poland. Then, as a result, from 1945, Yugoslavia is essentially recreated by the communists under um, its uh, very charismatic leader 
uh, Marshal Josip Broz Tito. Some of the older listeners may have heard of him. Um, and Yugoslavia is essentially reborn. It's mostly looks, it looks, besides some minor, some minor alterations on, along its borders, it almost looks exactly the same. Um, the core territories of Yugoslavia is still pretty much the same. Um, although this time it, it's reborn as a socialist federation. Um, for, um, this becomes even more pertinent from 1948, where Tito is formally expelled by Stalin from an organization called Cominform, which is kind of the, um, I suppose you would say it's kind of like a uh, an, an international economic cooperative, um, cooperative set up by various European com- um, of various European communist states. Um, as a result, Yugoslavia becomes um, this. Uh, Yugoslavia increasingly attempts to differentiate itself from both the Western Alliance, the NATO, and um, the uh, Warsaw Pact under the Soviet Union. Um, in 1961, it formally, along with India and several other um, former colonial countries, become it, it becomes a founding member of the Non-Aligned Movement. Um, it very much Tito himself, as a dean, as a kind of having quote unquote broken with the Soviet Union, Tito becomes this darling of the West. He's given extensive loans from the IMF. Um, However, particularly after Tito's death in 1980, Tito is quite fortunate in the di- dies just before <laughs> things start to go downhill. Um, the, uh, the IMF start calling time on those loans, particularly as the Cold War is wrapping up. Um, this leads to an economic crisis, whilst at the same time, the communists had been nurturing the idea of Yugoslavia as a federation rather than a single country, what had occurred in the, in the interwar period. So you have the emergence of these very strong localized identities, particularly in Croatia and Serbia, um, the two largest countries in the federation. As a res- um, in Serbia, specific, particularly from 1987, when you have the rise of Slobodan Milosevic as the president of the Serbian Republic within the federation, each republic kind of has its own president ruling council, and there's a federal council in the country. Um, the uh, Milosevic very much starts to play to this right to this populist nationalist current that's developing in particularly in the more rural areas of Serbian society, especially Kosovo. This is why Kosovo is a key area. Um, it's a uh, being an Al- it's an, it has an Albanian majority and a, but a very um, vocal Serb minority. Um, as a result, from sort of 1980s through to the 1990s, you have a you have pretty much the gradual political breakdown of the federation. In the early 1990s, what what becomes Slovenia, Croatia, and Bosnia Herzegovina all declare independence um, following extensive political wrangling. This leads to what's now what's often termed the wars of Yugoslav succession. So you have a short war in Slovenia; it's only lasts ten days. But you have a but then you have a a war in Croatia, particularly eastern Croatia, and all over Bosnia Herzegovina, which many of your listeners might be more familiar with, that lasts several years. Um, one of the most violent conflicts in late 20th century Europe, and you also have widespread repression of the Albanian of um, the Albanians in Kosovo, which is still um, following the Dayton Accords of 1995. Um, the Yugoslavia, what's still called the Yugoslavian Army, but it's just been reduced to Serbia, Montenegro, and Kosovo, withdraws from a lot of these areas. I mean, officially they're not involved, but they have been assisting well, with various Serb uh, separatist groups in those in those territories. Um, they withdraw. And then Yugoslavia continues until I believe it's 2003 when it's formally renamed Serbia and Montenegro. And then in 2006, Montenegro holds a um, referendum and votes by a by a fairly reason by a fairly reasonable majority, 55 to 45 percent, 
for independence from the Union of Serbia and Montenegro, which essentially ends um, Yugoslavia as a political entity pretty much at this point. So a very long history. Kosovo is at this stage as well, since particularly after 1990, a, a, a NATO protected enclave. And then in 2008, that declares unilateral independence. Although, again, this is still, it's only partially recognized by the UN. So <laughs> hope you all got, hope you got all that. <laughs> yes, it's so, somewhat complex, uh, where there will be questions later. So let's move to the second area of background. What do you mean by exploring Yugoslavia in the British imagination? When, as I um, referenced in, um, the, in the opening question, I think um, when I say the British imagination, I don't strictly mean the British imagination, how Britain or Brit or the British imagined other countries. What I'm specifically talking about really in the book is how the British imagined themselves. Um, following the wars, particularly following the war in Bosnia, um, which it, when it ended in, after, 1990, after it ended in 1995, there was a string of um, studies of, that were discussing, um, yeah, discuss, of looking at how not just the wars and the politics of the region, but how the people themselves have been represented, the, um, what, what, who were the former Yugoslavs, the Bosnians, the Serbs, et cetera, how they were represented, um, particularly in the press and amongst, quote unquote, Western intellectuals. Um, and the general impression was uh, British sources, incidentally, were very much a, a, may, a mainstay of much of the research, um, particularly British sources from before the Second World War. And kind of the conclusion to a lot of this research was up to, um, was that um, over the years, um, Western countries such as Britain, um, the United States, France, um, will um, kind of always sort of present uh, the Balkans as not really European. They present it as something that exists. Or, and I say not and when I bother the Balkans, I don't just mean the Yugoslavian Balkans. I mean all of the Balkans, barring Greece which um, <laughs> is often sort of treated as a separate entity. Um, all of the Balkans as this kind, either a sort of left, this sort of holdover from the uh, when it was ruled mostly by the Ottoman Empire back in the medieval period. So this kind of strange outgrow outgrowth of the medieval Middle East in Europe, or as a kind of um, pale imitation of what's often called European civilization. Um, so that was kind of the mainstay. That's been recently challenged in recent years, uh, my book being one of them. Um, and what I wanted to do with this was to focus on, because um, I get uh, one of the flaws I've noticed, I noticed in this sort of line of thinking was that the West or Western countries such as Britain are always characterized as um, stable and unchanging. Um, now, I'm sure most of your listeners will agree, uh, most British historians will agree that that was far from the truth. I mean, we only need to look at what British society was like on the death of Queen Victoria and what it looked like in 1914, just before Britain entered the First World War, to understand that that, yeah, that's a complete nonsense. Change was, um, these countries were changing almost continuously. Um, and so when I'd say the British imagination, I again mean how the British were imagining themselves against the background of societal change and from that societal change and how that societal change then affected their impressions of foreigners and other cultures. And through this book, I yeah, I um want to I want to I argue the case. Again, this is a very specific case, but I think you can use this type of this type of approach for other 
examples you may wish to do. In fact, I believe it has been done in the case of Britain and um, other and uh, colonial societies such as and um, yeah, area, British colonies, notably India. Um, that um, at, yeah, as change occurs, your understand and your understanding of yourself starts to change. So does your understanding of others, and most of that un and that understanding is invariably rooted in again self perception. Because in most cases, particularly um, when most of your population have either no contact with foreign cultures or they don't really know anything about foreign, you your only real point of reference ultimately is yourself. So I would say that's kind of the crux of what I mean by the British imagination. And the final bit of background we probably need to cover briefly is roughly what is the religious, ethnic and demographic nature of the South Slavic Balkans or what we might call Yugoslavia? Yeah, I'll probably just focus on the first Yugoslavia just for the sake of brevity, um, <laughs> because things become increasingly complicated after the second, during and after the Second World War. So um, in 1918, the um, the Balkans as it was, um, well, again, a lot of the sort of uh, discussion of the Balkans as to quote a, um, to quote an early 20th century um, treatise on the uh, political pot Balkan politics um, as a very mixed kettle of fish was actually fairly accurate. Um, in the most, probably the most quote unquote ethnically homogenous and religiously homogenous territory would be what's today Slovenia up in the northwest. Um, although even even then, um, much to the resentment of many Slovene nationalists, pro Yugoslavs, um, there was still a considerably large Austrian German minority. Again, this was part of Austro-Hungary. Um, Germans tended to dominate much of the industry, um, many of the many of the um, admin, government institutions, um, but overwhelmingly the population of what it, what what for the sake of for the sake of brevity we'll call Slovenia was predominantly Slovene. Um, it, it was Slovene speaking. Most of the population lived as worked as peasants or farmers um, or labourers in the towns. Moving further south to what is now Croatia, um, things become a little bit more, things start to become a little bit more complex. Um, the Croats themselves, again, they speak a language that is essentially just, um, that they, which is essentially the same as Serbian or Bosnian, or that barring some dialectical differences, oft, uh, historically it would be called, it was called Serbo-Croatian. However, similar to the Serbs, the main mark of Croatian identity um, again, all of this starts to emerge from the 19th century. Was um, it was uh, Catholicism, as the Serbs, as the Serbs associate with the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church, so the Serbs, so the Croats would tend to attribute their national sense of belonging to affiliation with the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. But again, um, particularly around in border areas, uh, Croatia does have the border with Serbia. You have a vast amount of mixing. Intermarriage wasn't un was far from unknown. Um, Overlapping customs, overlapping traditions. One of the one of the sort of a main a mainstay of Yugoslav propaganda in the First World War was, in fact, the would often revolve um, a group of Croat soldiers from Austro-Hungary meeting a group of Serb soldiers, and then being amazed to discover that they both they, that both both groups grew up learning the same songs, um, <laughs> worship kind of idolizing the same folk heroes, that kind of thing. Um, further to the south, particularly in southern Croatia, um, is a coastal, it's coastal province Dalmatia, which some of your listeners might know, might be familiar with from uh, 
um, modern tourist advertising. Dalmatia is kind of where Dubrovnik is. That's where all of Croatia's tourist industry today is focused on. Um, things become a lot more mixed. You have um, <clears throat> you have significant numbers of um, in this period. I mean, it's the majority of Croatia's population is still mostly Serb and identifies as Serb or Croats. But then you have um, different groups. You have, um, including numbers of Muslims. Again, this is also near the border of Bosnia. In Bosnia-Herzegovina itself, the population is predominantly divided between three main groups. They are, as um, I mentioned in the Serbia episode, they are the Bosnian Serbs, who again, their main form identity is with the Orthodox Church. Bosnian Croats, similar thing, identify the, with the Roman Catholic Church. And Bosnian Muslims, or what are today called Bosniak. Um, these are a um, cultural and um, social legacy of Ottoman rule. Again, this region was formerly ruled by the Ottoman Empire or Turkey, if you like. And um, they are, again, they come from, the, they have the same ancestral background as the Croats and the Serbs, but they, they had um, adopted Islam as their main cultural and religious affiliation. Um, they tended to... Uh, I wouldn't say they don't identify, they wouldn't necessarily identify as Turks, but they would often kind of say, have, yeah, they would often have a lot of, um, uh, yeah, they would often sort of um, have a lot of uh, affiliation, uh, I, yeah, ha have a lot of affiliations with various um, trends occurring in um, the Ottoman Empire or what later became Turkey. Moving further south to Montenegro. Um, this is again similar, almost similar to Slovenia. Montenegro isn't actually that. Um, isn't at, I mean isn't as uh, ethnically diverse as the other parts of Yugoslavia, but it's still um, quite distinct. The Montenegr uh, Montenegrins at this stage um, historically would identify as being Serbs, but not just any Serbs. They would identify as being the best Serbs because in Montenegrin mythology, the idea is their ancestors um, following Serbia, what's often termed Serbia proper, this being modern Serbia's occupation by the Ottomans, fled into these. Uh, into this very mountainous region it's kind of right it's on, it's on the coast it's again there is i think i believe there isn't a there aren't any areas in montenegro um i believe it's something like over 75 percent of montenegro's land mass is more than a thousand meters above sea level so incredibly mountainous region montenegro itself means the black mountain um and th then the um montenegrins kind of uh, as a result forged this quite distinct identity of being what they call mountaineers or um, which means basically mountain warriors. Um, they have a very, they had a very mar martial culture. Um, by the 20th century, a lot of people started to question just how accurate this was and whether it was kind of um, <laughs> a lot of this, this um, militarism was more for effect rather than uh, say <laughs> actual um, based on any actual accomplishments. But they had a, this, this history of being a, a, a kind of bastion of resistance to the Ottomans, particularly, and also a kind of um, beacon of Orthodox Christianity in a sort of a, in a area of the area of the world that was um, supposedly under Muslim domination. Um, moving east from there to Kosovo, this is again where a lot of the contention lay. In um, I mean, today, I mean, Kosovo is predominantly made up of Albania. Uh, the, po the population is predominantly Albanian. Um, Albanians are not a Slavic people. This is kind of the key point. The Albanians are not a Slav, uh, not Slavs. They're not descended from the um, tribes that the, the same group of tribes that the Croats, Serbs, Slovenes, Bosniaks, and Montenegrins are. Um, 
and um, and uh, they had very much benefited under Ottoman rule. The Albanians, um, in contrast to many other people in the Balkans, had uh, embraced Islam quite well. I say embraced; they kind of um, they embraced it, but very much on their own terms. E.g., they refused to they often refused to pay taxes to the Ottoman government, um, which was a kind of an important aspect of being Muslim in the Ottoman Empire. Um, but yeah, they are kind, of, but they have a very strong sense of um, of nationhood. Um, however, at this stage, whilst today the pop, the um, the there is a, the Serbian minority in Kosovo is extremely small. By this stage, the it was still fairly large, um, particularly after the First World War, where many Serbs and Montenegrins are actually encouraged to go and settle in um, Kosovo. For both Serbia and Montenegro, Montenegro is viewed as kind of the heart of the old medieval Serbian Empire, so it has a huge, huge culture of Serbs and Montenegrins. Um, then. As well as that, probably the most complex area you have is what is today North Macedonia. Um, I mentioned I, in I talked about the Balkan Wars last um, in the last in the in my the, my last appearance. Um, Macedonia, um, particularly from the late 19th century onwards, had been a, a site of major conflict between um, as between Serbia, Bulgaria, and Greece. Uh, the Macedonians themselves, similar to Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks, speak a um, language that's very, that's essentially um, uh, the same as Bulgarian, or but with um, dialectical differences. So it's a similar thing between Macedonian and Bulgarian. Um, a large church over in the West, particularly a large portion of the population is Albanian. Um, and then the actual Macedonian Slavic population itself, which is, was historically very contested, particularly with Serbia, the Serbs and the Bulgarians, um, they... Uh, 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 they tended to be quite um, the, the often in propaganda, particularly. They would usually be presented as um, not "quote unquote" having any national identity. Um, they would usually they would they would often be presented either as Bulgarians or Serbs who had forgotten they were Bulgarians or Serbs, if you like. This is kind of how again example of how toxic. Particularly, these are very modern ideas as well. This is another problem. Um, very modern ideas being imposed on an incredibly long-running and um, nuanced issue, um, but nationalism doesn't tend to really have any really do nuance. Um, <laughs> and then you have Serbia itself, um, which following the Balkan Wars and the incorporation of Macedonia and Kosovo had become one of possibly the most ethnically diverse countries in the Balkans um, <laughs> through the incorporation of Macedonia, the Macedonian Slavs and the Al Kosovo Albanians. Um, but again, you also have the Serbs who still formed the majority and were the biggest ethnic group within Yugoslavia after the First World War. So that clears things up. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's go back in time to the period before the First World War. How was the South Slavic Balkan area perceived by British writers and intellectuals? And what developments in Britain shaped their perception of this far off land? Well, for one thing, it's this, the, these perceptions are completely inconsistent. Um, this is due to a number of factors. One being that the, these lands are not a single country until 1918. Uh, prior to 1918, as I, as I already mentioned, they, are, they exist, they, they're divided between independent Serbia, Montenegro, the Ottoman Empire, and Austro-Hungary up in the north. Um, so um, again, uh, politically very fra fragmented. Um, much, I, I would say the key starting point to think about is the year 1878, or maybe just before that. Um, 
actually no let's go back to 1875 just to clarify in 1875 there is a major uprising in bosnia herzegovina um this lasts until 1878 this is part of a much broader issue of um, number of political issues around what's often termed the question focuses on the gradual collapse of the ottoman empire in this region and in britain's case concerned that russia would swoop in and hoover up <laughs> all of these areas um or try to build its influence um so britain and russia are playing these kind of ongoing power games in this, in this region as are other countries namely austria hungary France, etc. Um, however, in 18, during the 18, late 1870s, uh, reports from this region of because um, the majority of these of the, of the of the of those involved in this uprising are Ser in Bosnia are identified as Serb or Montenegrin Orthodox peasants. Um, they are presented in a very positive light back in Britain, and arguably, I mentioned in as I mentioned in the book, possibly the most important figure historically from a political perspective and cultural perspective in this entire process would be William Gladstone. In the late 1870s, Gladstone is making a play to get back into number 10. And he very much seizes on these kind of, um, not really just the in the Yugoslav lands, but particularly over in further in eastern Bulgaria, where there's another uprising. And he seizes on these areas and kind of um, emphasize uh, as a kind of example of a sort of Christian awakening against the Ottomans. He's not, Glaston isn't necessarily anti-Islam, but he is anti-Ottoman. Um, again, when you think about kind of in Britain's rule over India, you can't really afford to be anti-Muslim, vehemently anti-Muslim expect to hold down vast swathes of um, South Asia. Um, but then, and then Glaston, and then um, Glaston kind of makes sort of this anti-Ottoman campaign, that's the core of his campaign, and that builds throughout the century, and that really starts to build um, for the rest of the 19th century. Um, by, uh, it's, it's, it has a particularly particular potency amongst liberals in Britain. Um, many of these, many people who later campaigned for Yugoslavia identify as kind of existing within a Gladstonian liberal tradition. Woodrow, most famously, ironically, would be Woodrow Wilson um, in at the at the Congress of Versailles, despite being American, um, he's often he was often characterized later as kind of the heir to Gladstone. Um, but before the First World War, um, that's kind of, so that kind of becomes your political setting. However, it's again sort of this idea of independence for the peoples in this region is doesn't necessarily mean independence. Um, Follow it in 1878, Austro-Hungary is given the uh, Austro-Hungary is then. Pretty much given the right to administer Bosnia Herzegovina and other former Ottoman territories, and this kind of and this and then it, and it's presented very much as this kind of benign imperial power similar to Britain um, in terms of um, its administration, in terms of its expansion into the Balkans. Again, very much a sort of imperial mindset. However, amongst the general public itself, um, this kind of this actually sort of sets the scene for how. The British pub, the wider British public. I'm not, and I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about people who just write about the Balkans or travel to the Balkans. I'm not talking about the actual quote unquote man or woman in the street, if you like. Receive an inter, an, a receive or are presented with their, the, this image of the Balkans. Um, it's usually very much frozen in time as an area of sort of sporadic violence. That and because many particularly correspondence from the Balkans almost never contextualize or properly report on anything. It's usually given in this very um, sort of, yeah, it's always it this sort of strange thing that happens randomly, but that's actually not true at all. There are reasons for this happening, but it's just not reported on. Um, to, during the 20th century, particularly in the Edwardian period, British um, writer, some British writers and artists start to um, 
incorporate the Balkans into their own work as this very suitable setting where they could sort of present British uh, British ingenuity and prowess. So um, you see, for example, a number of adventure novels where the hero is British or some sort of scion of the British Empire, and they go to the region to fight the dastardly evil or whoever it is, um, and then they help the natives. It's kind of this very sort of colonial era type mindset. Um, but really the kind of the mainstay of how the region is perceived is kind of, again, very sporadic. Um, it usually invariably focuses on individual event acts of violence. So one would be the murder of Serbian, Serbia's king, Alexander Obrenovic, who I mentioned in the Serbia episode again. He, um, he's murdered by a group of nationalist army officers in his palace. And um, that's kind of presented to the public in Britain as kind of, oh, this is what the Balkans is. Even though if you kind of look, were to look at crime, crime in the Balkans is probably is, is in this area of the Balkans is probably far, far lower than it is in actual Britain, Britain. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like these events are happening every day. It's just when, when they do happen, that's what that's how that's kind of held up as how the Balkans is type thing. At the same time, however, particularly from the late 19th century, I mean, a key element I would argue in the book as well is that by the 18, late 1880s, the Victorian era is basically over. Um, Everyone, so everyone might think, well, what about the death of Queen Victoria? What kind of, but it, that's kind of um, really by the by. Um, Britain from the, from the 1880s onwards is increasingly struggling in some respects globally. It's losing out much of the world, much of the sort of money of its monopolies are being openly challenged um, around the world, particularly by Germany and the United States, later Japan, although that's more of a post-First World development. And um, there's this sense amongst certain elements of British society, particularly the middle classes and those with more, say, business interests that are more attached to developments abroad, that um, the country is not necessarily in decline, but past its peak, if you like, its imperial peak. Um, coupled with this, you also have the uh, continual, um, this sort of simmering tensions in Ireland, um, which do actually build. I know people like to, some people may like to downplay developments in Ireland, but really that is an issue, building and building and building. Um, and this actually, this I would argue actually prompts something of a change, particularly in how the region is seen. It's interesting, uh, particularly from the period 1903 to 1912, you actually see an increasingly let a more sympathetic portrayal of the region's, not the region's rulers and the politicians, but the common, but the normal people of the Balkans, the peasants. This kind of become the pe and um, this kind of impression of the region itself. Uh, I would, I argue, as I. I would argue it becomes less political and more almost humanitarian or social. And um, this very much this very, is very much in tune with what's going on in Britain at the time. Um, in the Edwardian period, you have the liberal social reforms. You have growing focus on providing for unemployed for the unemployed, pensions for the elderly, and really that's sort of starting to shape amongst not amongst regular people amongst um, you know regular. Uh, working class, lower middle class people, that's starting to shape their perception of the world, even before the First World War. In fact, I would even say the First World War, rather than a breaking point with the Victorian era, is just an acceleration of this, what is already an ongoing trend. And that, I, and that kind of, I would say, is the main, the main development that affects how perceived. So obviously, the First World War starts in Yugoslavia or in um, Sarajevo, uh, in modern day Croatia. And it blows up. How does Britain or how do people in Britain view this area of uh, the world during the war? And how does the changes during the war shape that perception? Well, it's really, as I, uh, as I, as I 
as I would argue, it doesn't so much change as just accelerates what's already happened. Um, by, 19, by the Balkan Wars of 1912 to 1913, which again, I would actually incorporate into the wider period of the war. I actually, in the book, I actually describe the First World War as taking place from 1912 till about 19, really incorporate and incorporates the, um, and because, um, you know, conflict is already broken out already um, across much of the, of the world. But um, so building from the Balkan Wars, in a, so building from the Balkan Wars, you have a um, growing sense of widespread public sympathy for the plight of the popu of the region's populace. Um, again, um, th this is kind of the region's populace divorced from their from the nationalists and the politicians and all the actually viewed as making creating the problem. Um, in nineteen from nineteen fourteen in particular, you start to see um, the Britain's actual presence in the Balkans during the First World War is somewhat unique, and it's this kind of this is kind of what really starts to accelerate this uh, change, this changing image. It, um, it's until, I, I believe you've actually, you have actually discussed this in, the, in your episode, earlier episode on Salonika, there isn't a, a large military presence until 1950, the end of 1915. Um, so from 1914 to late 1915, the majority of Britain's of presence is predominantly civilian. It's made up of humanitarian volunteers like Dr. Catherine Stuart MacPhail, and the Scottish and the Scottish Women's Hospitals, or as the SWH, as they're commonly known, um, and this completely changes the whole dynamic of how this war is the war is understood in the Balkans. Most of them are deployed to Serbia and Macedonia. Um, they kind of frame they don't really frame the conflict as being a conflict as such. They frame it increasingly as being one of humanitarianism, um, crisis, uh, public health. That becomes a big thing because in 90 at the end of 1914 beginning of 1950 there's an outbreak of a epidemic of an epidemic of a disease called typhus which ravages much of the population that actually kills more people that arguably kills more people than the war itself or the combat combat um and thus the war the war this early stage of the war and particularly in serbia is framed as a conflict against a conflict against disease and um, attempting to prevent sort of the collapse of public health if you like um, and then and again all of this is becoming increasingly focused on Serbia specifically back in the British public sphere um, in at the end of 1915 where Serbia is invaded and occupied you have of course refugee columns fleeing to the coast uh, the army and civilians large numbers of them also die and this um i i argue cements serbia's reputation serbia already has a very positive reputation in britain at this stage um as a being kind of strong military ally akin to belgium but the um the retreat through albania and montenegro in at the end of 1915 um seals this reputation as being not just um, the serbs become they're not just victims but heroic victims they're almost kind of they become martyrs to the cause if you like um because again when they say the invasion is predominantly austro-hungary and bulgaria but it's led by german military officers so as a result in britain this is interpreted as well this is just germany invading a, an innocent defenseless small nation um via its regional props um <laughs> germany is always always perceived as the kind of malignant puppet master behind all of the behind these developments and this is reflected in propaganda um the serbs again are all presented as kind of these heroic universal victims there's a direct link between the serbian resistance to the ottomans and the germans in fact the german propaganda some propaganda even calls um uh, they call the spread of German influence. Some call them call it Prussian Islamism. 
<laughs> so kind of direct, a direct parallel. Um, Germany is now kind of the new Ottoman Empire. Um, and again, this is all feeding into the wider propaganda narrative. It's predominantly done for a domestic audience. So, I mean, you have soldiers on the Western Front who probably would never have he hear about this. They may occasionally hear about the movements of the Serbian army, but um, this is being done entirely for domestic consumption, if you like. Um, and pro-Yugoslavs in, Brit in Britain, again, this is what's fairly unique about this propaganda, propaganda campaign, is that it is very much directed by political actors from the region itself. Um, in the previous, in my previous appearance, I mentioned a group called the Yugoslav Committee, which was predominantly made up of Croats, Serbs from Croatia and Slovenes, um, most of whom were anti-Austro-Hungary. They were secessionists. They wished to gain independence for their territory, for their respective homelands. Um, well, initially they wanted autonomy, but then as the following the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, this becomes calls for full-on independence because they're mainly because they're concerned about um, German or Austrian German and Hungarian national, um, which is starting to emerge. And um, they kind of hijack this sense of public solidarity with the Serbs and sort of re um, contextualize it as one of Yugoslavia. They sort of say, well, the Serbs are Yugoslavs, so Serbian resistance is Yugoslavian resistance. And this kind of, this is, this is what makes the First World War equally unique in that for once, the politics is able to actually gain a foothold in the public conscious. This is something that sort of uh, campaigners prior to the First World War had been struggling to do for almost a decade. Um, there, is, there is actually an opening for this kind of political narrative. Now, it doesn't last long. In fact, it is already dying out in 1917. But at that stage, again, going back to the idea of the public's perception of the region being frozen in certain time periods, this kind of freezes how the wider public conceive of Yugoslavia, initially at least. So we come to the end of the war. Uh, Yugoslavia, as you say, is formed in 1918. How does Britain perceive this unitary state of Yugoslavia and how is that perception shaped by what happens after the First World War, in fact, the legacy of the First World War in Britain. Yeah. So just turning to Britain quickly, um, just to bring in a fact I hadn't really mentioned that much prior, which is Ireland. Um, in 19, essentially, again, people are free to debate debate with me on this, but I am I am of the opinion that Ireland, or rather, um, and by extension, Britain itself, faces a crisis that really lasts from about 1912 to 1921 22 in 1912, you have the emergence of the, um, well, the Ulster Unionist movement as an active and armed force to which the Irish nationalists, the, I the Irish Republican Brotherhood and other groups immediately respond. The, that, see, that supposedly goes dormant during the First World War, but we have the Easter Uprising, so obviously it's not dormant. Um, <laughs> a lot of it's just British propaganda trying to bury it. In there's a lot um, in the aftermath of the First World War, there is often um, 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 most um, historians would argue the First World War doesn't really end in 1918. It actually, I be, in fact, I believe one of your previous guests has talked about this. It continues on in other parts of the world. I would argue it happened that continues in Britain as well um, with the outbreak of, well, first of all, Sinn Féin's winning the majority of the seats or Irish nationalists winning the majority of the seats in the 1918 election in Ireland and subsequently the Irish War of Independence and eventually the creation of the Irish Free State. The, um, the result of Ireland actually leaving the Union 
um, which again, and again, Britain's actions in the Irish War of Independence do not in, actually really endear it to much of the public. Um, in fact, anyone who's actually taking interest in what's going on in Ireland start to present, in fact, even present the British forces as akin to the Ottomans in the Balkans earlier in the 19th century. In fact, there are parallels drawn here. Um, <laughs> so, um, in fact, uh, Lloyd George and Churchill are even described as behaving as Ottoman sultans by various sections of the press. Um, so already these parallels still exist. Um, when following the departure of Ireland, particularly, um, that's I would I would say pretty much destroys much of the domestic context around which this earlier image of Yugoslavia was built up. Um, alongside the end of the First World War itself. Um, they no longer have the uh, wartime momentum of propaganda to sustain the campaign. Yugoslavia comes into existence in December 1918. So even before the Paris Peace Conference, Yugoslavia is quote unquote liberated already. Um, and that pretty much ends kind of, and so you know, for the average man, woman in the streets in Britain, they would look at this and say, well, they've got their freedom, their long sought after freedom, um, why should we care anymore? So Yugoslavia during the 1920s pretty much disappears as a topic of conversation. It, it's, um, it's, it is still mentioned in sort of um, in newspapers such as the Times particularly, um, but really only in sort of passing. Um, the country itself is very much um, politically unstable. Uh, there is the, the main sort of source of tension is between the Serbs and the Croats. Um, in fact, the uh, the main opposition party is a Croatian peasant nationalist party um, led by a very charismatic um, leader called Stepan Radic. Um, and again, during the 1920s, any sort of discussion of Yugoslavia pretty much focuses on this um, this sort of uh, these sort of very high end political squabbles. Um, although, to be honest, political violence in Yugoslavia isn't actually that uh, severe, compa certainly compared to, say, Poland or uh Romania or other countries it's actually not too bad the political situation isn't as unstable as people often like to present it as um, however in 1928 um, the country starts to sort of come back into the public conscious a little bit when Stepan Radic this very charismatic Croat leader is assassinated in the Yugoslav parliament by a Serbian nationalist from Montenegro just to uh, <laughs> just to mix everything up and then as a result the king uh, king by the, uh, King Alexander Karadjordjevic, who during the First World War actually becomes pretty much sort of steps in as kind of the embodiment of Serbian resistance. He is the leader of the military. At this time in the First World War, he's only the crown prince, but he kind of he emerges from the First World War as this incredibly positive figure. Um, he gives off a very kind of calm, apolitical sense of being this military man who only cares about his people. He, um, a lot of this is kind of PR, of course. He speak, he, um, he kind of he's deemed to embody the ideal military ruler. He speaks in very short, short, sharp, declarative sentences. He supposedly offers very simple, straightforward solutions to everything. And he actually proclaims a royal dictatorship in 1929, following the death of Radic. Um, suspends the constitution, suspends parliament, and this is sort of cheered on, particularly in the more sort of uh, liberal and conservative leaning elements of the press. Um, Labour uh, and the sort of the socialist left are actually incredibly critical of this, but sort of um, generally the consensus is this is a good thing. 
because um, democracy and this re democracy and parliamentary chaos have kind of led to these problems. At the same time, something else, some, another interesting development starts to happen in the 1930s, especially. And this goes back to what's occurring in Britain, in that increasingly the region isn't really presented so much as this sort of unstable um, battlefield of nationalists and um, murder and sort of murderers and assassins or kind of um, a humanitarian war zone. It's more presented as a tourist destination. I, and again towards the end of the book, I argue much of this occurs by the fact that in Britain, and particularly in the late 1920s, early 1930s, especially after the um, following the end of the general strike, you have you see an upsurge in um, consumerism across all of Brit across British society. In fact, the interwar period in Britain is uh, Brad Bevan at the University of Portsmouth has argued is pretty much the golden age or the beginning of the consumer age in Britain. And that consumerism, similar to kind of humanitarianism before it, starts to really permeate every aspect, including how areas of the world are perceived. Yugoslavia at the same time is attempting to build its coastal region, Dalmatia. Again, the origins of Croatia as a tourist seaside tourist destination are lie in this period. And that really is how Yugoslavia, to a much of its degree, is framed. It's framed as a tourist destination. Well, the coastal areas of Yugoslavia are framed as a tourist destination. Uh, in 1930, you have the publication of a novel called Illyrian Spring by an author called Anne Rice, um, who, interestingly, um, the novel itself kind of, it's and it's framed more as a tourist destination for middle, upper middle class, older tourists. Uh, international tourism is also taking off at this point, even amongst working class um, during the interwar period. So Yugoslavia, really, that's kind of how that sort of emerges as Yugoslavia's new image. There is some small, there is a, a revival of some cultural interest, particularly of the peasantry, um, peasant customs, various, a number of amateur anthropologists start to travel over and do studies of the region, but really kind of, it's always framed in this very consumeristic way, if you like. Towards the end of the Second World, as the, towards the, um, as the sort of Second World War starts to sort of creep forward, um, that does change to a degree. Um, you have, of course, Italy is just directly over the border. Um, so Italian fascism particularly becomes kind of the new, partly becomes the new demonic presence in the region, um, particularly given that the large number of uh, Yugoslavs are actually live within the borders of Italy or areas that annexed, annexed by Italy after the First World War. So their kind of persecution is often held up by human rights campaigners. But really, ultimately, I would say it's, it's again, this very consumeristic um, this very consumeristic prism, if you like, that dominates everything up until really 1939. So what do you think are the lessons that policymakers take from your work uh, in, when considering foreign um, different countries? I would say there are two main lessons to take from this. The first is, again, I think this has this. I, I, I would say most foreign, certainly the foreign office has hopefully has in some respects learned its lesson, although unfortunately I can see this starting to creep back a bit now. Um, but the, my main, my main, um, yeah, my main lesson would be: you should not use your own country, your own social prism, and your own social experiences, and your own experiences of life in your own homeland as the measure by which you judge the rest of the world. Um, again, the image I've sort of presented in the book was one that was very distorted, prone to political hyperbole, prone to kind of short-term hysteria prone to focusing on the most of taking kind of very minor aspects of the local culture and just blowing them all out of proportion. Um, 
And the point I would, and again, that that continues. I mean, that starts that is already starting to die out in the interwar period, but certainly before and during the First World War, that is very much kind of the dominant strain of how these regions are looked looked uh, how these regions are perceived. Um, and my second point would be, um, I'd have I don't really spoken about this that much, but would be when you seek advice on these areas, be careful, look at who you're seeking advice from. Um, in the First World War, most of the people there were political, most of the people giving advice from the region were political actors with a very specific, very, very skewed political gender that just happens to align with some of what Britain was seeking war aims. And also in, in terms of Britain as well, I mean, the government during the first, before and during the First World War tended to call on this cadre of experts. Now, the term expert in this case is incredibly vague. Um, there is no, re- I mean, Later on, it becomes attributed to having educational or um, certain career qualifications. But by this, before 1918, expert is this very nebulous idea where it's just someone knows someone from the region or someone can speak the language from the region. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, in, and even people in the Foreign Office are saying um, when, you know, you have uh, saying, in foreign, if you read Foreign Office correspondence, you get these arguments saying, why are we listening to these people? They're cranks. <laughs> They're obsessives. They're obviously politically biased. Why are we listening? Why are we sort of treating the sort of these publications and the things they're writing as the gospel truth? It, yeah. So again, that would be those would be kind of my two takeaways. I think my third would be don't don't do a podcast when the cat is in the room because it wants to be involved. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your book and your research? Well, um, you can. My book is now available. Um, it was published. It was published as an ebook in June. Uh, the hardback edition came out in July, so it's now available. Um, I would suggest it, um, going onto Bloomsbury Academics website, my publisher's website, rather than Amazon, uh, simply because um, Amazon inflate the price of it. Um, uh, for f- um, further information about this, I um, other sort of other authors you might want to look to is um, just for the Balkans in general, not just Yugoslavia, but the wider region. You might wish to um, have a look at Eugene McHale's book, um, "The British and the Balkans: Forming Images of Foreign Lands, 1900 to 1915." Another excellent title. And generally, as well, if you are interested in history, and I would say this for any, t- and I would encourage anyone. Um, and you don't need a PhD to do this, to just go online and go to the primary sources themselves. In the case of what I looked at, much of the British stuff is available online. You can download a lot of these books now. They're, they're, in, they're, they're, they're all um, public domain, so there's no, you know, there's no copyright. You won't, you won't get in trouble for downloading these things. It's perfectly legal. And just um, with kind of these, with kind of this context in mind, just have a read through some of what people were writing at the time. I mean, most of this is most of it's really badly written, incredibly boring or dry. It's full of weird jokes that will probably make you feel uncomfortable nowadays. But um, yeah, as I say, don't be afraid to don't be afraid to uh, do your own research. Samuel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.